So today we finish up our passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. We are in the section that describes the practical application, the practical example of walking wisely in this world. Remember it started all the way back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, where it says that we should not walk as unwise, but wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil, and that we should walk understanding the will of the Lord, which is the will of the Lord is the mystery that Christ is Lord and that all is under Him and that Christ is King and Savior and Lord. And we should walk with Christ being our focus. And as we are and as He is our focus, the Spirit of God then controls us. And we're not drunk with wine, but we're controlled by the Spirit of God. We are filled with the Spirit and we worship we worship and praise God for all that He has done, and we thank God for all that He has done in Christ for us, and then we fulfill the roles that God has ordained for us, that the Lord has given us, that we submit to those in authority above us, and that even the ones that are in authority respond with appropriate action by loving and serving and leading the way that God has us. So what happens is, in verse 22 to 33... Paul gives that first example of a, a, a great practical application of walking wisely. We saw last time that there were two primary relationships involved. Two primary relationships involved. And those two primary relationships are Christ and the church. Or the, two, uh, the, the primary relationships are Christ and the church. And then the second relationship is what? The husband and the wife, right? The husband and the wife and Christ and the church, those are the two relationships that are in view. With the main subject, we thought at first it was going to be about husbands and wives, but the simile becomes the dominant factor, and the relationship between Christ and the church becomes the primary of the two relationships that's in view throughout this passage. Remember, the man is strong as a horse, remember, and it became all about the horse. Well, that's the same thing Paul does. His husbands and wives are supposed to react and live in relationship the way God wants them to, but then the relationship that becomes dominant is what it's compared to, which is Christ and the church. And it becomes the main theme. And the whole section is ultimately about Christ and the church, whereas the husband-wife relationship is, for lack of a better term, the resulting example, the resulting life. We walk wisely by doing our, our roles in light of Christ and the church. So as we saw last time, Christ and the church becomes the, becomes the focus. And in fact, in effect, our relationship with Christ controls how we treat those who God has ordained for us to be in relationship with. Very key, this is important, that our relationship with Christ then controls the way that we live out our relationships with others. As we understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, we then live out relationships properly. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We submit to government and authorities if God has those over us. If there's a workplace environment and there's somebody that's above us in a workplace environment, we will do what? We'll submit to them. But we do it all based on what? The relationship we have with Christ, the way we know Christ. And as we're focused on Christ, we then live it out and it shows itself in the relationship. Our passage broke down into two main sections. The outline is real simple. The wife's role, which is submission to her husband. That's found in verses 22 to 24. As it was compared to the church's submission to its head, who is Christ. And then the second one is the husband's role, which is sacrifice for his bride and his body. There's two sections. We'll see this in our second section, which is sacrifice for his bride and sacrifice for his body. Those are the two ideas that are laid out here. And then finally, there's a digression at the very end that kind of brings back that theme of how wives and husbands should interact. Let's start with the second main point, because we covered last point, uh, how the wives and the role of the wives last week. This week, we want to cover husbands and their role as sacrificing for his bride and his body. Let's look at it. Start in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also 
loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, there are two parts with this second section. It's the sacrifice for his bride, which is found in verses 25 to 27. And then there's sacrifice for his body, which is found in 28 to 32. Let's look at this first section. Again, if we're not careful, we'll take a passage like this that makes so much of Christ in the church and miss the key responsibility we all have. So let's just go ahead and lay that out there just so that the men don't get out of here thinking you don't really have to love your wife. It's really all about Christ in the church. Well, it is about Christ in the church, but there is a command. You do know that, right, men? The Bible does say, and, G and Paul says through, by the Spirit working through them, husbands, love your wives. That is a command. That is our responsibility. What does it mean to love your wife? To love your wife is to be committed and to evidence sacrificial unilateral love. Now, what do I mean by unilateral? It's that it comes from us. It's intentioned by us. And it comes one way, that we are required to love them sacrificially, not conditioned on whether they're worth it or not, or worthy of it or not. That's very, very crucial. Whenever we're, we often read the Bible, or any of you like me, I have a tendency in my flesh to read the Bible and apply it to other people before I apply it to myself. Anybody ever had that problem? Have you ever heard a sermon and about halfway through it you thought, man, I sure hope so-and-so is here. Maybe they'll come to the second service. What's the problem with that? The Bible should be applied to who first? Ourselves, right? Here is one of those beautiful cases. Whenever you hear a sermon on husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands, the husbands love the command to what? Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what they hear. And then what do the wives hear? Well, I will if you love me as Christ loved the church. What happens with this? Well, as we'll see as I go along in this passage, it actually turns the gospel upside down. It makes it backwards. And you're going to see this, and I'm going to unfold it a little bit more as we go along. Let me ask you a question, husbands. Do you love your wives when they're worthy of being loved? Or when they're unworthy of being loved? Yes. You love them whether they're worthy or not. The command is not love your wives when they're worth it. Not love your wives when they're submitting. Not love your wives when they look beautiful. Not love your wives when they're doing what you want them to do. It's love your wives as Christ loves the church. And as we will see, Christ didn't love us when we were worthy of being loved. He loved us when we were unworthy. So the command is not one of these conditional commands. It's not one of these commands that says, okay, I can do this if you check off the ten boxes, then I'll love you. The Bible doesn't give us that, that ground, men. We are required to love our wives even when they are not worthy of being loved. Because, by the way, you're never worthy of being submitted to. Does everybody understand that? But God is the one that gives the command. So the ultimate authority is who? God. All right. So this section gives a responsibility for men. And it's very clear. Husbands, love your wives. Lay down your lives for your wives. Say no to yourself for your wives. Serve your brides. Put your, their interests over your own interests. And this, by the way, is not a one-time love. It's a lifetime commitment, a continuous way of life. It's not, you know, it's not just when, you walk down the, when she walks down the aisle and you say, I do. It's the rest of your lives till death do you part. Everybody understands this, right? Love is not just a temporary thing. You don't fall in and out of it. You love continuously. That's biblical love. It's unilateral. It's sacrificial. It's continuous. Now, notice Paul gives another explanation of Christ's love. So that you can really understand and so that we men can really understand what this love is all about, look who he compares it to. Again, he says, as Christ 
also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. Christ did it. Notice it also is repeated. Throughout this section, there's this, these uh, pronouns that are emphatic. He himself is repeated numerous times throughout this whole section. What does this imply? It implies that Christ initiated it. It's about Christ accomplishing in it. It's about Christ pursuing us. It's not about us pursuing Christ. It's about Christ pursuing us. He himself gave up for himself for the, for the church. Christ took it upon himself to die for his bride. This wasn't forced, by the way. This was sacrificial. It was out of a love for us. It was willful. And it was of his free independent will because he is the Lord God himself. He sacrificed himself. An appeasement of God's wrath for his bride. A atonement for sin. When it says this, he gave himself up for her. This is atonement language. This is sacrifice language. This is language of him giving himself up to take the sin, on, take our sin on himself and take the judgment we deserve. He took it on himself. This is true love. So now let me ask you a question. Do you know that Christ loves you? Do you understand that Christ loves you? Do you understand that he gave himself up for you? To be a member of the bride of Christ, the church, you must be born again. What does that mean? You must be born again. You must be born from God. That you must understand the gospel. You must have had a point in your life where God had changed your heart and you believed in him. You turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ. That's what it means to be a born again believer. Those are the ones that Christ died for. So let me give it to you. I'm going to just lay it out here real clear for all of you to hear. I want you to understand it. I want you to know what the gospel is. You say, Pastor Mike, I've heard the gospel a million times. Good. You want to hear it again, don't you? If you're a bride of Christ, if you're a member of the church, the sweetest news in all the world is what? The gospel. I want to hear it again. How about you? So here it is. You ready? God, the holy God, the creator God is holy and just and perfect. What that means is he's never sinned. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect union. They've never sinned. They're just. They're righteous. As Romans 1.18 states, though, the wrath of God, because he's righteous, abides on all of humanity. Why does it abide on all of humanity? Because humanity, in contrast to a holy and righteous God, is sinful. We are born sinful. Why were we born sinful? Because Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned, he plunged all of humanity into death. And we're separated. So when you're born, you're born these beautiful little babies. They look beautiful, but they're what? Vipers and diapers. They're... They're sinful beings. Within their souls, they are against God, separated from Him. They don't have relationship with God. Why? Because mankind is totally depraved. We're not just, we don't become sinners when we sin. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. We're sinners in our core. That's what we are. God is holy. We are what? Unholy. He is righteous. We are wicked. This is God. This is us. But in order for us to have right relationship with God, what must we have? We must be righteous. We must be righteous. How in the world can we be righteous? We can't. So what did God do? God initiated our rescue. The Savior came to us. We couldn't get to him. He came to us. And when he came to us, he did what? He came into the world. And he came as a baby. And he was the only man that ever was born without a sin nature. Other than Adam, but he wasn't born, but Adam was older. So nobody except for him, right? 
Adam was sinful because he sinned, but ultimately mankind, every man after, has been sinful except for one, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself initiated his loving rescue of his bride. What did he do? He came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned once, not in thought, word, or deed. Everything he did for every second of the day was perfect. It was righteous. To the point that the Father even required for him to die. To die a horrible, barbaric death on the cross. In fact, in order for him to fulfill all the law, he had to become accursed. Now what that meant is, is that all of God's judgment had to be placed on his son at the cross. And so what God the Son did is he submitted to the Father and took that judgment upon himself. And when he took that judgment upon himself, what did that mean? He was appeasing the wrath of God for everyone who would believe in him. For everyone who would repent and believe in Jesus, their sins are being covered. Everybody else, they're going to face judgment for their own sin. Anybody that repents and believes in him, Jesus was covering. Everybody else has to take their own punishment in hell. So for everybody, this is an amazing groom, isn't it? It's an, a righteous groom. He comes to die for his bride, to buy his bride. He loves his bride. And in order for us to become his bride, a righteous, holy people, he had to die in our place. And when Christ died in our place and rose from the dead, righteousness is available to us who believe in him. Folks, Jesus himself came for his own. That's love. Why did he come for us? Why did he come for us? Was it because he looked down the corridors of, ha uh, 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 of time and said, Oh yeah, I know that Omar. He's a pretty good dude. I think I'll go ahead and die for him. No. Sorry, Omar. It wasn't your worth. It was because of God's worth. It's because of his own love. Because of his great love with which he loved us, Christ came into the world. He pursued his bride to the world and then died for us. There is nothing in us that made us worth pursuing. Do you hear me? Now, why is that important? Well, because this really develops and explains his love. You can't know his love if you think that he loved you because you were valuable or worthy of it. You don't get it. If you think you did something to earn his love, then it's not love. It's not biblical love. By the way, you won't get it for your marriage either. You won't get it for your neighbor. How many of you have a bad neighbor? One of those neighbors, you don't need to raise your hand. One of those neighbors that pushes you to the brink of insanity. They do everything you can do and you think to yourself, oh please, no, here they come. I gotta run. They're going to say something or do something or be really rude to you. The Bible says very clearly that we're supposed to love our neighbor. How can we do this? How can we do this? Are our neighbors worthy of love? No, just like we weren't worthy of love. Because what did Christ do? He came into the world, he initiated it, and he pursued us to die for us. It wasn't our worth. It was his worth, his value, his glory. And so, all of us who have repented and believed in him, he loved us. And we understand his love for us. He gave himself up for us. And we trust him, don't we? So how do we love our neighbor? We love our neighbor when we remember that he loved us first. Even though we were the bad neighbor, weren't we? Who was the bad neighbor? That'd be me. I was living in his world, spitting in his face, saying, it's about me. When he's the creator. And I'm doing what? I'm living on whose planet? His planet! And what did he do? He pursued me in my sin. 
So men, you are called to love your wives as Christ loved the church, and He loved the church by pursuing us in our sin, loving us despite who we are. So what is the purpose that Christ, of Christ giving Himself up for us? What is the purpose? Well, Paul gives us a threefold purpose. You see it here in the verses. Notice in verse 26, it says, so that He might sanctify her. Then in verse 27, it says, that He might present to Himself. And then at the end of 27, there's the contrast, but that she would be holy and blameless. So the purpose of Christ pursuing us and loving His bride, the church, us, those who have believed, is threefold. So that He might sanctify, so that He might present, and so that we would be holy and blameless. So that the bride would be holy and blameless. Let's look at these and dig in a little bit. He did this so that He might sanctify or set apart His church. What does this word sanctify? What's another word for sanctify? Anybody know? Holy. Holy. That he might make us holy, set apart. Same, uh, same Greek root, the same Greek concept. He made us a holy bride, a set apart bride. This is, by the way, positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. What does positional sanctification mean? Well, there's two types of sanctification when we study doctrine. Positional is, is that Christ died to set apart His bride from the world, positionally. Then there's another one that is Christ died that He might progressively sanctify us and make us set apart from the world. This one is positional. This is the beginning that He set us apart. He sanctified us, set us apart made us holy. So I asked in the first service, let's see how well we do in the second service. How many of you in the room are holy? How many of you are holy? Yeah, man, there's a couple hands going up. If you understand positional sanctification, you should raise your hand. If I was talking about positional sanctification, everybody would say you would raise your hand. Because by position... Because of Christ's pursuit, His death for me, I am righteous with God. I am set apart by God. I have been made holy. That's why the believers are called what? Saints. Holy ones. How do we become holy ones? How do we become saints? Is it by our action? Is it by some pope somewhere telling you, oh yeah, that guy was a pretty good guy and he stayed long enough in purgatory. Now we declare him a holy one? A saint? No. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that we are sanctified ones, set apart one, holy ones, saints, by position through faith alone in Christ alone. Christ did it. And so therefore, I am a set-apart one. I'm righteous in God's eyes. So why is this so important? Well, because it's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, is that there is nothing that I do to earn my way to God, right? He initiated everything. Now, why is that important if we're comparing our love for our spouses to Christ's love for us? It fits it fits. How many of you have heard a sermon on this passage before? And you've heard them say, I've heard preachers say this, sadly. I've heard, men, your wives will start submitting to you when you start loving them like Christ loves the church. Ever heard that before? Do you understand that that's the exact opposite of what this passage preaches? It's the exact opposite. I'm going to say it again. Listen. This is what you've heard. You've heard this. I, I, I won't make you raise your hand. Men, your wives will start submitting to you when you start loving your wives as Christ loves the church. That is a blasphemous statement. You're kidding me. Why is it blasphemous? Because it's conditional love. It's conditional submission. 
Should a wife submit only when her husband is loving her? No. If it was based that way, it would be the opposite of what this passage is saying. The reason why wives submit to their husbands is because Christ loves you. And because Christ is Lord. And because Christ has saved you. And because Christ loves you. And so you submit to your husband, not because he's worthy of being submitted to, but because Christ has saved you. You're delivered. And husbands, you don't love your wives only when they submit to you. Because if that were true, you would say, Christ's love for me is not enough. I need my wife's submission to fill up what I was lacking in Christ's love for me. Which is what? Insanity. When do we love our wives? Right now. <laughs> when do we love our wives? All the time and everything. Why? Because we're loved. He loved us. Now I admit to you, that as I thought through these words, the first thing I did is I went to my wife this morning and she was standing at the sink. She had no idea what was coming. After studying and working on this passage, you can imagine how unbelievably convicting this passage is, right? Everybody knows. I have to actually preach this stuff. Can you believe it? After studying and thinking on this and preaching it now a second time, I'm thinking the same things. I walked up to my wife and I looked at her, I turned her around, and I grabbed her, and she says, what's going on? And I said, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. Why? What's, what's wrong? I haven't loved you as, I'm, as Christ loved the church. I have not loved you as my master wants me to love you. Again, not perfection, right? <laughs> It's direction. I'm trying. By the direction of my life, I'm seeking to love her as Christ loves the church. But ultimately, I know I fall way short of what Christ's love for me is. Every man in the room says, way short. And so I told her, I'm sorry. She says, I feel, I feel very loved. Praise the Lord. And I hugged her and I gave her, I whispered in her ears, in her ear, I said, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you way more than I could have ever dreamed of loving you. Jesus loves you. Because that's what, I was actually loving my wife there the way I was supposed to when I was saying that. Why? Because a husband that loves her wife loves his wife as Christ loves the church, makes much of Christ's love for her more than his own love for her. Did you hear that? That's so crucial. I think we are so focused on ourselves that somehow we are the ones that are the satisfying thing that our wife needs. We're never that. Jesus is that, right? We talked about that last time. Very important. Jesus is the one that set her apart. Jesus is the one that sets the church apart. Notice how he did it. Notice how he did it. It says, by, it says, having cleansed her. Or you could put the by up front because the participles probably should be translated that way. By having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. How did Jesus do it? Now think about this for a second. Not only did Jesus set us apart by his actions and what he did, but he also sets us apart and cleanses us and makes us right with him by giving us what? The very message of his completed work. The word. It's the word that changes us, isn't it? When you heard that gospel presentation, that first time you heard it and you really got it, and you were converted and you turned from your sins and trusted in Him, what had happened? You were cleansed by the Word. You were cleansed by the Word of the message of the Gospel. It's the Gospel that changes your heart. Was it because you did something good? 
Was it because you walked an aisle? Was it because you prayed a prayer? Was it because you want something? No! It was because the word of the gospel penetrated your heart and changed your heart. And you said, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus, you're the one. You died for me. And you were cleansed by the word. How were we set apart, declared right, made holy by the word of God being preached to us, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to make it work and convert us. So, he loved us. He loves the church. He did it so that we would be set apart by the word. Notice it develops it so that he might present to himself the church in all his glory. In all his glory. This is great stuff here. Look at it. So that he might present to himself the church. Jesus loves us. And again, do you see the emphasis? Present to himself the church. So that he could have a spotless bride. So that he could have a holy church. So that he could have a beautiful perfect, righteous people. Not idolaters and sinners and enemies of God. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Does God unite himself with idolaters and sinners? Does God unite himself with prostitutes? No, he doesn't. No, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, this passage is so crucial. Look at this. Verse 9, 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkard, nor reviler, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. I guess God's not uniting in his kingdom idolaters, adulterers, drunkards. They're not going to heaven. Is that true? That's what the passage says, right? So how, how are we going to heaven? How are we going to heaven? Because everybody in this room, you are what? Born totally depraved sinners. Look at it, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. This is the same concept that he has over in Ephesians chapter 5. Beloved, if you are a born-again believer, God has declared you right, righteous, holy. You are no longer who you were. You've been set apart. You're a holy one. And he did it so that he had a spotless bride. Jesus sanctified us and sacrificed himself so that he could be united to a righteous group of followers we are declared right by faith in him and he did it all so that we could be with him beloved god's bride wears white because god's son died in its place that's it we talk about this often in our church and whenever we're doing premarital counseling we're always saying this we're saying to both couples, both of the couples, and I, I often emphasize this to the, to the young men, I emphasize you better protect their purity. You better protect their purity. You have a responsibility to protect their purity. The fact of the matter is, is that we all should be pure before we get into marriage, Right? The Bible is very clear that this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be pure in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, even, even in what we watch and what we think in our hearts. It should be pure. It should be righteous. 
What does that mean? Now think about this. What if you had to be pure? What if you had to be pure in order to go to the marriage feast of the Lamb? In order to be married to Christ, you understand I'm using the symbolism. What does that mean? In order for you to go to glory and be into His glory and to share in His inheritance, you have to be holy, pure. Are you? Yes, I am. How? He himself became my sanctification, my set-apartness. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. I'm going to heaven, beloved. You know why I'm going to heaven? Because of Christ. Is it, is it all Him? It's all Him. It's all Him. What do I bring to the table? What do I bring to the table? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. I got nothing. The white robes come from Him. Because of Him. This is love. Are you loved? You're loved. And husbands, we are now called to imitate that love. To walk in that love. To love our wives like that. We're called to give ourselves up for our brides. We're called to lay down our lives for our brides. And wives, you are called to submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ. And again, submission, submission only works if you know who is really Lord. And if you know the Lord also did what for you? He died for you. He's the Savior of the body. So, men, do you, do you love your wife? Do you lay down yourself for your wife? Do you say no to yourself and... Pursue pointing her to Christ and honoring Christ. How do I do this? How do I do this? Answer, I know Christ more. The more I know Christ, the more I know He loves me, the more I will love her. Don't mix it up. I want you to hear me again. Men, this only works if your eyes are not fixated on your wife or yourself. What do I mean by that? If I'm completely obsessed with my wife, then what am I going to see? She's just a person. And she's, she's fallible. If I'm completely... Focused on myself, what am I going to see? Only my fleshly desires. I'm going to see my wife as what? What can she give me? <laughs> Do you understand? But if I'm completely focused on Christ, I'm what? Satisfied. I'm completely satisfied. I'm at content with Christ. So if my wife wakes up in the morning and looks over at me and says, I want to sleep. Will you go get the kids? Will you go take care of those monsters out there right now? That was a joke. Please. I will think, because I woke up with my eyes fixed on Christ, praying, Jesus, you're enough. Oh, sure, no problem. Let me go take care of them. Do you see how that works? But if I'm laying there in bed and she says, will you go get those monsters? They're going crazy. Please. It's your turn. And I'm focused on myself. I will go, but don't you know I got to preach this morning? By the way, this didn't really happen. 
Just so you know, didn't really happen. Did not really happen. It's a sample. Hypothetical. What's the point? If I'm focused on me and my flesh, I can't do it. If I'm focused on Christ and his love for me, it's no problem. It's a privilege. That's why our relationship with Christ controls all that we say, do. Again, the bad neighbor. Who was the bad neighbor? We were. But he loved us. And so what do we do? We love him anyway. Because I hated God and he loved me. So therefore I love my neighbor. Jesus loves me and so I can love my wife. Jesus died to provide for himself a perfect bride. I don't know about you, but again, I'm going to lay this out here. I can't wait to be separated from this body of death. How about you? I'm ready for glory because this kind of love doesn't come natural for me all the time. Anybody else in here? Anybody? Oh, oh okay, y'all are with me. I thought you were saying it comes naturally for you. I was like, i got to hang out with James more. <laughs> no, it doesn't come naturally for us. Why? Because in our flesh, we're constantly what? Thinking way too much of ourselves. That's why we need to abide in Christ. By the way, the longer you're married, the more your spouse will learn to placate to your flesh if you're not careful. They know your weaknesses. And sometimes they will give you and help you with your weaknesses in order to avoid getting your snip. Do you understand what I mean by the snip? You getting a little bit irritable with them? But what is that? That's the reverse of the gospel again, isn't it? That's them trying to do something to make sure you treat them well. That's not the gospel. By the way, that's the same goes, and we'll see it next week. That's the same thing with children. And I, I want you to hear me closely, and all children in the room need to put their, ears, their fingers in their ears at this point. Parenting cannot be all about merit-based behavior. Do you understand what I mean by that? If it's based on merit-based behavior... You're going to raise a Pharisee. Do you understand what a Pharisee is? Somebody who knows how to keep the rules and stay just under the radar so that they look righteous to the world. We parent in the glory of Christ. We make much of Christ and we love even when our kids are unlovable. If we get the gospel. Jesus did this so that we might be set apart in his glory. So that we might be holy and blameless. Isn't, isn't, isn't the grace and love of the gospel so overwhelming at times? It should, it should make us all go, wow, why? Why do you love me like this? Why do you care about me this much? As much as I sinned, even last week, and you're like, Pastor Mike, you're a wretched sinner. You sinned all week. Beloved, how many, were you thanking God all week? How many of you just walked around and all day long, God, you're so good. Thank you. Oh, thank you for pulling out in front of me. What a great example. I get to give of love to my neighbor. We're not that way, are we? We are self-centered, egotistical people, aren't we? Even in salvation we are, aren't we? 
but Christ still loves me. And I'm still positionally holy and blameless. Wow, what a God, right? Are you loved? Are you ready to love? Yeah. Notice the next part. The husband sacrifices for his body. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined together with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ sacrificed for his body. Husbands must sacrifice for their own body. You say, well, I do that. I do a good job of that. Well, until you realize your wife is a part of your body. You're united with her. Notice, Paul kind of assumes some things here. Marriage, is a, marriage establishes another person is a part of one body. It's in union. That's, you know, that's how God ordained it. He ordained for a man and a woman to come together and become one flesh, one body. And it's not just one time. And a lot of people think that this is just the intimacy aspect of it. That's just a small degree of it. It's much more than that. It's one flesh forever. One flesh forever. Do you understand? At least until glory. Right? Until glory. But... Here, while we're on earth, we're one flesh with them. We're one with them. And notice marriage was ordained by God for this to unite two totally different people, yet equal image bearers. We're united in one body. We're one unit. We became one flesh when we married our wives, if you're married. And if you're not married, you're only one with Jesus. The only one you're married with or you're united with. Males and females have contrasting yet complementary contra- uh, characteristics. God made us to be perfect helpmeets, as Mark talked about last week. And you ought to come here. It's really good in Genesis. So after a man and a woman get married, the man is supposed to view his wife as just another extension of his own body. And notice he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that when I love my wife, I'm actually loving myself? Yes, that's what it means. But then he explains it. Look at it. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So let me ask you a question. What does he assume here? Now, there is a general truth here that you need to get. Sadly, in our society, it doesn't always play. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It's a general rule. What's the general rule for us as humans? What do we do? We feed ourselves, don't we? Looking out, yep, we do a very well, a very good job of feeding ourselves. Take it from Pastor Mike. We nourish ourselves, don't we? We cherish ourselves, don't we? We take care of ourselves. We try to get a good night's sleep. Why? Because we're trying to take care of our bodies, right? We eat. This is a general rule. Everybody does it, right? That's his point. But he says, once you get married, you're now one, and so you nourish and cherish your wife. She's one with you. I think you do see the obvious that husbands should do what for their wives? Take care of them. Provide for them. Nourish and cherish them. Care for them as their own body. It's just obvious. Just a side note for all singles out there, listen to me closely. This is free. Extra little nugget for you. If you don't take care of yourself, then the woman will probably notice and she won't want to marry you. Do you understand? Hygiene matters. Young men, take a bath. The same goes for your finances. Your finances. Ladies, listen to me. Listen to me closely. If you're a single lady and you're listening or watching at home, listen. Never marry a man who cannot handle his finances. Why? 
because your finances are going to be his finances and he's going to wreck your finances when he becomes one flesh with you. It goes both ways, by the way, doesn't it? What do we need to do? We need to be careful. Because when we marry, we have a responsibility as men to lead our families, to care for our wives. They are, after all, a part of our body. So what does Paul do here? He illustrates this. And as, as strange as it sounds, he takes the, what we would think is the main idea, husbands and wives, husbands love your wives as your own body, sacrifice for your own body. He says, nope, there's a more important thing to view. And he goes back. And what is the more important thing to view? Christ and the church and the union that the church and Christ have. Hasn't he already preached on this? Hasn't he already said it in the book? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, it was all about our union in Christ. What was Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 10 about? Being one in Christ. And so what does he do when he gets here? It's all about being one with Christ. Again, notice, just as Christ gave himself. For this reason a man... And notice... Notice it says, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his own body. Now, I want you to listen closely. The love that Christ had to set us apart at our conversion based on his work in the past continues on. The love that a man has for his own self and his wife as he nourishes and cherishes her is the same love just as Christ also does the church. What does Christ nourish and cherish us with? I'll give you a hint. It's the same thing that started our cleansing. It's the Word of God. As Christ reveals Himself through the Word of God and our understanding of His love, what, are we done? Where, what happens to us? We're nourished and we're cherished. We understand that He loves us. Now, I, I was, I, 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 again, I, I want to confess this. I, I was thinking on this this week. There are times that I feel like Christ doesn't love me. Anybody in here have those feelings come through you? You thought, does Christ really love me? Does he really love me? I don't feel like he loves me. Anybody had those? I want you to understand something. The scripture tells you that he has loved you. He is loving you, and He will always love you. This passage says it. You know He loves you because He died for you. You know He loves you because your sins were paid for by Him, that He gave Himself up for you. You know He loves you because He's nourishing and cherishing you all the time. And He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you know He loves you because He has set you apart so that you would be in His glory which is what it previously said, which implies what? Inheritance, that it's going to be finished. He's loving you, he loved you, he's loving you, and he will love you. Always, forever, we're loved. And so what do we do? We love our wives. We nourish and cherish them. Again, the sacrifice is Jesus's of Jesus is far beyond even our comprehension. Look at verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now when you get this, this is a quote from where? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Is it talking about husbands and wives in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? Yes, it is. What is Paul using it as an illustration of? He's using it as an illustration of our union with the body, with Christ. Our union with Christ, which has already been developed. He's saying that that picture of a husband and a wife becoming one flesh is also our union with Christ. It's like it. It's a simile. It's an illustration. Now, I think it's interesting. He does say, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I do think it's interesting that he adds the whole Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He doesn't just lead the little end at ending part. It doesn't say, 
For this reason, the two shall become one flesh. doesn't say that. It has the whole section. Why? Now, again, listen closely. Some might misunderstand this. This is not saying that the Father and there's a mother in heaven. Please. That is not what he's saying. Okay? But it is implying the sacrifice of the Son... And that the Father, the Son left the Father, came, to glory, came from glory to earth, lived the perfect life in order to join Himself to His bride, which is who? The church. He came into the world to what? Die for His bride so we could be united to Him. And we know this is true because of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Remember? We were reconciled to Him in one body through what Christ did on the cross. Beloved, this is love. This is Christ's love for us. Do you know you're loved? Do you understand you're loved? Is, your, is His love based on how good you are? Is, it, is His love based on how worthy you are? His love is based on His unilateral, sacrificial commitment to us. What a great God we serve. What a great Savior we have. Nevertheless, see how it digresses? Last verse. Nevertheless, it digresses. Each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Do you see how it's almost like a side note? It's almost like Okay, we're talking about the glories of Christ and how He united us with Him and Christ loves us. By the way, husbands, love your wives as yourself. And wives, respect your husbands. Fear your husbands. Honor your husbands. Why? All because of the main theme. Christ loves us. Christ is Lord. Christ is our Savior. Our relationships, if you have a bad marriage, if you have a bad marriage, it's based on one main thing. And I know, I do these counseling sessions, and I finish and they say, well, why don't you give me like five practical steps to fix my marriage? You know, come on, give me some meat, you know. Let's talk about my past and get into all the things of how he's hurt me and all these bad things that he's done. I'm not saying that none of those things play into it, okay? But I will tell you that your only hope for surviving all the mistreatments and all the bad things that have happened in your life are only found in one place, and that is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And when I say, Jesus is your all in all, when He is everything to you, then your marriage will be okay then you get it. Now, what does the world tell you, though? What does the world tell you? We'll close with this. What's the world tell you? The world tells you that the reason why marriages are a wreck is because husbands are trying to keep wives down and wives are supposed to be just as much leaders in the relationship as the man. That's what it, the world tells you. It's the oppression of ladies is the problem. And the world tells you that it's all about how men are just absolutely horrible. And every man in the room says what? Amen. Except one. And his name is Jesus. And by grace through faith in him, I can love my wife as Christ loved me. Your hope is not in your husband. Your hope is in Jesus. Your hope is not in your wife. Your hope is in Jesus. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Lord, we are in need of you. We're in need of your grace. We're in need of understanding the love of Christ better. We're in need of dying to self and recognizing our total inability to do any of this apart from your grace. 
And yet, Lord, we are also reminded that Christ loves us and that you are our hope. And so, God, we turn to you again and say thank you, praise you. You are worthy. We're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that all of our sin is paid for. We're thankful that one day we will be with you. Lord, help us now to go and serve and love our neighbor as ourselves, love our wives, love our children, love our bosses, love our community based on what Christ has done for us. And then help us, Lord, to proclaim Christ and make much of him, not ourselves. For we know it's in you that all hope is found. We pray this in Jesus' name.